Well, this morning we are continuing in our sermon series on the gospel of Jesus according to Mark. And we've come now to part 12 entitled The Lord of the Sabbath. Would you bow with me once more and let's pray as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that in days of old you spoke, and you spoke in many different ways, even as we just saw you spoke high up on the mountain, and you spoke to your prophets by your spirit, that they would know your will and your word, and have written it down, and that you have preserved your word through the ages, that it comes down to us today. We thank you that each one of us has the privilege to hold it in our hands, and that even more we can boldly declare it this morning. And so we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it. We pray that you would speak through me, your servant, and that the word would be yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the United Parcel Service, you may know it best as the UPS, while they take great pride in their productivity of their delivery to people everywhere, Now, on average, a UPS driver will deliver 400 packages every single working day. Now, the company gets such high productivity in part by micromanaging the smallest details of a delivery man's daily routine. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Robert Frank says this of the UPS drivers. He says, with a battalion of more than 3,000 industrial engineers, the company dictates every task for its employees. Drivers must step from their trucks with their right foot, not left, fold their money always face up, and carry packages under their left arm, not right. They tell drivers exactly how fast to drive, how fast to walk, three feet per second, and even how to hold their keys, always teeth up between the thumb and third finger. Those considered too slow are accompanied then by a supervisor who then cajoles and prods the driver with stopwatches and clipboards and correcting their technique to make sure that they have maximum efficiency in a given day. Now, while this approach may increase productivity and efficiency and, of course, therefore the profitability of the UPS company, when it is applied to the spiritual life, It appears to be a complete and utter failure to bring about real spiritual growth or transformation. For when religious leaders imitate these sorts of tactics of the industrial engineers by controlling and micromanaging every movement of their followers' lives and censuring them for the tiniest missteps, whether real or perceived, it inevitably leads to legalism and bondage to the law. Now, legalism can be defined as mankind's attempts to earn salvation, gain God's favor, and prove one's righteousness by the outward performance of a list of rules, a series of do's and don'ts. Because if you think that the stopwatch-carrying, clipboard-marking, micromanaging experts of the UPS were bad, they don't even hold a candle to the Pharisees in Jesus' time. For as I've said in previous sermons, the Pharisees were the self-appointed religious law enforcement on all matters of observing the Mosaic law, and right now today we see on matters of the Sabbath law and its many regulations. And to them, this was a very, very big deal indeed. 
Now let me explain why. Way back in Genesis, following God's six days of creating the heavens and the earth, we're told that on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Then in Exodus, God instructed Israel to follow his example, that he hadn't done this just accidentally. He had done it as a pattern for us to follow. And he told them, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So let me be clear at the outset that observing the healthy rhythm of having a day of rest once every week was established by God, not as a punishment, but rather as a blessing for our good. And the Sabbath is not only good for our physical rest, it's also for our spiritual rest and renewal as we connect with the Lord through worship, through enjoying fellowship with other believers, and and being filled up with the Word of God. For if you work your fingers to the bone every week, but if you never stop to rest and reflect and renew, then not only will you burn out physically, but you will miss out on what you were ultimately created for, which is to take time to stop and enjoy the presence of your creator. Be still and know that I am God, the word says. We can't do that when we're constantly busy working. And so God has built in this healthy weekly rhythm of rest, taking time to stop and connect with our creator and enjoy his presence. Now, the story is told that once some wealthy Americans went on an African safari. And as they were forging their way through the jungle, using the local natives to carry their burdens, they decided that they had no time to lose, and so they pressed on hard for ten straight days, never stopping. After this hectic pace, they awoke one morning to find the natives refused to carry their loads. They just sat there. And when the Americans demanded to know why the natives were just sitting there, we're paying you after all, they simply replied, we rest today, for we must allow our souls to catch up with our bodies. I think that's a good way of putting it. Have you ever gotten so busy and worked for so long and so hard that it felt like your soul needed to catch up with your body? You didn't know if you were coming or going? Well, that's what happens when we don't follow God's healthy pattern of taking time to rest. Now, as a sidebar here, the Jews observe the Sabbath on what we call Saturday. And so the question often arises as to why the New Testament church began to gather for worship on Sundays rather than on Saturdays. Well, the simple answer is that because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, which was Sunday the early church began to gather on that morning to observe and celebrate the resurrection. And we see examples of this early on in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, for instance, says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, and Paul spoke to the people. And so breaking bread was another way of saying we had communion. We remembered the Lord through the fellowship of communion. Paul spoke to the people. It actually turned into an all-day service. It's the famous incident where he preached so long, a boy in the window fell asleep and toppled out the window, landed on the street, splat. He was probably dead. And in fact, it says he was. And Paul went out, raised him from the dead, but no time to go home. He went back inside and kept preaching. So this was the service that took place on a Sunday. 
Now, there have been some groups, such as the Seventh-day Adventists, who have insisted that the Sabbath should continue to be observed on Saturday. However, the, major- the majority of the Christian church, for the better part of 2,000 years, has followed the example of the early church and continued to gather for worship and rest on Sundays. Of course, just as in Jesus' time, there are those who like to debate this and argue over this distinction. However, it's interesting that even within the New Testament writings, we see these things addressed. Paul addresses them in Colossians. Chapter 2, 14 and 16 and 17, he writes, Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So here Paul is specifically naming all of these things that were, that were according to the Jewish law, rituals, and customs, and he specifically includes the Sabbath day. And he says that all of these things are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so by Jesus' atoning death upon the cross, he fulfilled all of the Old Testament's written code and its regulations, which was all a foreshadow pointing to him. And he has removed it so that we can now enjoy the full reality of new life in him without being burdened by the relentless demands of the law, of which there are over 600 specific commands. So again, just to be clear, for us to observe a day of rest every week, that principle, whether it be a Saturday or a Sunday, it remains a gift from God to us, a good and necessary gift for us to practice. However, now because of what Jesus has done, we can enjoy that gift and view it properly, not as something that is a drudgery that you have to obey the Sabbath or else. That's not how we view it. Instead, thank you, Lord, for blessing us with a day of rest. We receive it as a gift from you. And see what a difference our attitude towards it makes. Because you see, the Pharisees had made it exactly a do-it-or-else scenario. The time of Jesus, the Jewish leaders had established 39 Sabbath clarifications onto the one commandment from the Ten Commandments about honoring the Sabbath. They had added 39 clarifications to the one command. That wasn't all. Each of the 39 clarifications had multiple subdivisions making up for over 1,500 specific prohibitions of things you could not do on the Sabbath. From one command, they got to 1,500. Now, I'm just going to give you a few examples. Not all 1,500 or we'd be here all day, like Paul. All right, so here's just a couple. It was unlawful to kill a flea that lands on your arm, whack, because that would make you guilty of hunting on the Sabbath. Work. You have gone hunting by killing the flea or the mosquito. So if you live in Manitoba, don't go outside on the Sabbath. You're going to slap a mosquito and you're hunting. Here's another one. You could dip your radish in salt, but if you left it there for too long, you were pickling it and thus working. So the Pharisees, believe it or not, actually had discussions on how long it took to pickle a radish to make sure that you wouldn't be pickling it by how long you dipped your radish in the salt. 
You could only eat an egg on the Sabbath, or pardon me, an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath if you had killed the chicken as a punishment for having worked on the Sabbath itself, right? But if you let the chicken live, you cannot eat that egg, all right? It was okay to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the ground because that made mud, and mud was mortar, and that was considered work because you made mortar. So spit on a rock, not the dirt. Now, as crazy as these are, and these are just a few, many of these are still practiced by Orthodox Jews today. For example, when Leanne and I visited Israel, we learned that they have what they call the Shabbat elevator. Shabbat is the Hebrew for Sabbath. So the Shabbat elevator. The way it worked was that because pushing a button was considered work, they have the elevators pre-programmed on Shabbat to automatically stop and open the doors on every floor. So you can imagine it's slow going. It's got a pre-programmed time. It'll go, doors will open, wait a bit, doors will close, it'll go down automatically. And so it's slow going, but that way people can get on or off the elevator in their apartment without having to push any buttons. So again, these are just a few examples. But it gets us thinking about the absurdity of, of the law when we follow it in this legalistic manner. Because remember, this isn't just about, the, the mindset isn't just about what is the detail of the rule, it's about what am I earning? Because this is about earning my favor and my place before God. And so all of this is context to set the stage for our gospel reading this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me this morning. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now I'm going to use just a simple three-point outline to frame this account. It's very straightforward. There is an accusation made. Jesus gives an answer, and then he gives an application. So we have an accusation, an answer, and an application. Let's begin with the accusation, verse 23. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, we've seen in the last few sermons in this series that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had already been ramping up their watchful scrutiny of Jesus. They were watching his every move. Previously, we saw that they were offended when Jesus forgave the sin of the paralytic man who had been lowered down through the roof. They were quite horrified when Jesus ate together with tax collectors and sinners. And they were absolutely indignant, we saw last time, that Jesus' disciples weren't fasting like they did. But now, now, working on the Sabbath? Well, now they'd seen it all. Jesus must be a heretic. Let's look again at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Plucking heads of grain. A parallel account also makes the point that the disciples had taken the heads of grain and had rolled them in their hands like this. Maybe you've done that. Farmers have done that, of course, to check, to get the grain in the palm of your hand, and then they were tossing it back and having a little snack. Now, while there are roads in Israel, in that time it was quite common to cut through a grain field to go where you wanted to go if that saved you some time. So take note that the Pharisees didn't accuse 
the disciples of stealing grain. Rather, they were accusing them of harvesting and threshing the grain, which in their minds was work on the Sabbath. Now, the reason it wasn't considered stealing for the disciples to pluck some grain from who knows whose field comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25, which says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in modern terms, if you walk into your neighbor's field and have a little sample of the grain, no big deal. But if you drive your new Holland Combine through your neighbor's field, then you might have a problem, right? That's taking it too far. So back then, you could pluck some for yourself, but keep the sickle at home. Don't, don't be harvesting his grain. As long as you pick it by hand, you can have what you want as you travel through. Now, this likely, even to this limited amount, wouldn't go over that well even today. Let's say if someone cut through your backyard and stopped to help themselves of your vegetables in your garden that you've been working at growing all year long and now it's harvest time this couple next couple of weeks and if people randomly walk through your yard and started picking it you might not be all that happy however in jesus time the old testament law prescribed that this practice in israel served as a practical way that no one not even the poorest amongst them would starve and so while we don't read that jesus himself was eating he might have been, but specifically the Pharisees see that the disciples are eating, and they hold Jesus responsible for the behavior of his followers. And this was actually a common understanding in that culture. If a rabbi's disciples did something wrong, then the rabbi himself was held accountable for their actions. So even if Jesus was not picking and rolling the grain and eating it himself, his disciples were, and if he was not rebuking them, then it was as though he were doing it himself. And so here we also get the sense that some of the Pharisees were actually following Jesus and his disciples around that day because how else could they have seen this? Like religious traffic cops, they're out on the roads or following along this group just watching for a reason to pounce so they could write him a ticket. And we see the immediacy of the word, look. It's like the Pharisees are right there in the group as they're traveling through this field and, aha, look. Look what they're doing. They're following along. The accusation was crystal clear. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You've got a bunch of lawbreakers here, Jesus. What are you going to do about it? And so Jesus gives his answer. Verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, I love how Jesus refused to argue with their accusation, but instead he immediately appeals to Scripture to show them that there is a biblical precedent that has been set demonstrating that compassion is more important than commandment. Jesus was actually rebuking them here with a touch of sarcasm. And, and he asked them in a sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of a way, have you never read? Right? He's, he's as though he's questioning their knowledge of the scriptures, which of course the Pharisees have memorized forwards and backwards. And I say that literally. They had it memorized. 
have you never read? This is a great way for us to answer questions as well. When people want to bring things to us or try to challenge your faith, appeal to Scripture. Don't try to debate them on your own terms. Know the Scripture, appeal to the Scripture, and ask, well, what does the Bible say? And start from there. Jesus did that often, pointing back to God's word. Even when Satan came and tempted him three times, Jesus always appealed and quoted scripture. And so in this case, Jesus points them to an account found about David way back in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now the story itself has a direct parallel embedded within it between David, who was an archetype of Christ, and Jesus, who is Christ. So the archetype is the foreshadow, and the type is the reality, right? So remember, Paul talked about that. These things were a foreshadow of what to come is what is to come, an archetype. But Christ is the reality. He is the type. He is the fulfillment. So David is an archetype. Jesus is the fulfillment. Now, in the story that Jesus referred to, it's one of those famous times where King Saul is chasing David through the wilderness, Right? That happened many times. This is one of those incidents. Saul's chasing David through the wilderness, and here we see the parallel is that Jesus, like David, is now being pursued by the Pharisees, who, like King Saul, began as legitimate, but they have since disqualified themselves by their disobedience to God. Their hearts are hard. They are not right. And so while they were running from Saul, David and his men, they ran out of food, they become hungry. And so too, here we see another parallel, that Jesus and his disciples, pursued by the Pharisees, are hungry and looking for food. And so David went to the high priest, Abathar, to find some food. But he told David that the only bread he had on hand was the holy bread, also called the showbread or the bread of the presence. Now the showbread was 12 loaves of bread, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They were baked fresh every Sabbath day. Interesting, Jesus even points out that the priests had to break the law by baking bread on the Sabbath by a command of God. Go figure. But that was not considered work by the Pharisees because, well, that was a separate category. But nonetheless, 12 loaves of bread baked every Sabbath, that was all that the high priest had on hand for David. But he told him that, well, only the high priests are allowed to eat that bread. No one else is allowed to eat that bread. Because you see, the loaves were then placed on a table in the holy place in the tabernacle to remind Israel of the Lord's presence and their dependency on him for their daily bread, reminding them back to the manna in the wilderness. And so the bread was replaced every Sabbath and the old bread was eaten by the priests. So only the priests were allowed to eat it, and it was a week old, right? So every week they got to eat some rather old bread, but that was for the priests to eat. One week, then they baked the fresh bread for the next week, and it would sit there in the holy place. Leviticus 24 verse 9 says that no one was allowed to eat the shoe bread except for Aaron's descendants who served as priests. But then in this case, David has come. He's, he's desperate. He's in need. He's already God's anointed one as the king. Obviously, Abathar believes that. And so in this case, he makes an, an exception. The high priest gives David and his hungry men the shoe bread in order to sustain them so that they could continue on and have the strength to continue to elude Saul and not be taken captive. 
And so the case that Jesus was making in his defense to the Pharisees was this. If because of the extreme circumstances, God had allowed David, the archetype, the foreshadow, if he had allowed David and his men to violate one of his rules regarding the eating of the special Sabbath bread normally reserved for the high priests, then certainly God would also allow Jesus, the type, Christ in the flesh, he would allow him and his disciples to violate one of the Pharisees' very stretched laws about not harvesting on the Sabbath in order to feed themselves as well so that they could continue the mission. It was really an argument from the greater violation to the lesser violation. For in David's case, it was not a mere question of just picking some grain on the Sabbath, but a much more serious charge of eating the bread of the presence. This was a greater violation. Whereas Jesus' disciples taking some grain while they were walking along on the Sabbath was a lesser violation. And so Jesus is making the point here that since God had not rebuked David or the high priest for violating a greater Sabbath law regarding the eating of the showbread, because of their need, because of the circumstances, then how much more was it also acceptable with God for Jesus' disciples to violate a lesser Sabbath law in order to feed themselves so that they too could continue the mission? In Matthew's parallel account, we see Jesus' heart of mercy and compassion come to the surface when he also adds, saying this to the Pharisees, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And so you see for Jesus, mercifully caring for his disciples' needs was far more important than rigidly protecting the Sabbath law. Even though he himself, together with God the Father and God the Spirit, had created and ordained the Sabbath, mercy still triumphed over the keeping of the Sabbath. And this brings us now to the third and final point of our study, the application. The application. Following the accusation and the answer, Jesus concludes with not one but two applications. Verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, in my research this week, I learned that some of the rabbis actually taught that the very reason God had created man was in order that man could keep the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was there for man to serve it. They actually taught that. And so here Jesus is directly rebuking and contradicting that specific teaching. And he states that the Sabbath was made as a gift to serve mankind and not the other way around. Man was not created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created to serve man, to be a blessing to man, the pinnacle of God's creation. Man was the pinnacle of God's creation, not the Sabbath. It was designed to be a blessing, not something to hold man in bondage. It was to be a day of life-giving refreshment, not a day of draining restrictions. And so as we apply the Sabbath principle of stopping one day a week to rest physically and renew spiritually, we must remember that God made the Sabbath to serve man and not for us to serve it. In other words, it's not about the Sabbath forcing us to stop work or else. 
but rather it's about gratefully receiving a day of rest from the Lord and enjoying it with the Lord, which is all for our benefit, and that we can bless the Lord in return and he will pour out his blessing upon us as we connect with our Creator. So if because of exceptional circumstances, exceptions need to be made, especially in matters of showing mercy, such as feeding the hungry or tending to the sick, Jesus not only understands, but in fact, he encourages his disciples to feed themselves and to help others. For he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now the second, second application is that we are not made to serve the Sabbath, but rather we are made to serve the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath. For we read again, the end of verse 28, that Jesus makes this audacious claim. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now the title, the Son of Man, is a messianic term that's taken from the book of Daniel. And it came to refer to the Anointed One, the Messiah who would come to free God's people. It was Jesus' favorite term of himself, the Son of Man. Now, the Pharisees would have understood the implications of what Jesus was saying when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. They knew Daniel. They knew the prophecies. But just in case they didn't get it, Jesus then boldly referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the only way that that you can understand this in context is that the title Lord refers to one who is an owner, a master of something. So the only way that Jesus could be the Lord of the Sabbath, to be the owner and master of the Sabbath day, is if he was the one who had created it in the beginning and therefore had authority over it. Now in this one statement, Jesus was revealing himself to be the sovereign God and co-creator together with his heavenly Father. So if it was in fact true that Jesus was and is the Lord of the Sabbath, then his lordship and authority also extends over everything and everyone. And that means that rather than serving the rules of the Sabbath as though the Sabbath were in charge, we rather serve the Lord of the Sabbath, for he is in charge. He is in charge of everything and everyone, including us. And so our desire is not to serve a day. Our desire is to serve the Lord of that day. And we serve him, for he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And for him to make such a claim, well, to the Pharisees, if they were upset before, now their hackles are are beyond standing up on end. To make such an audacious claim that he was Lord over the Sabbath meant that he was Lord over them. And they didn't like that, not one bit. But now for us, as we acknowledge him, Jesus Not the foreshadow, but the reality. Not the archetype, but the type. The fulfillment. The Lord of everything. May we have hearts that desire to draw near to him. That we may hear his voice and know his heart. That we may serve him. Not according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit of life. Not because we must, but because we may. For he has called us to come and follow me. For as Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. 
years ago in an outdoor conference at a very straight-laced Presbyterian church in Omaha. People were given helium-filled balloons and instructed to release them at some point in the service when they felt like expressing their joy in their hearts to the Lord. So everyone was given a balloon. It was outside. When you, whenever you feel like it, whenever the Spirit moves you, just let that balloon go to express your joy in the Lord. Well, as the service proceeded, balloons began floating up periodically here and there, ascending up into the sky. But once the service had ended and everything was said and done and the last prayer was prayed and the amen was declared, as you look back out over the audience, about one-third of the balloons remained unreleased, still clutched in people's hands of apparently some very joyless people. So let me ask you a question. Are you still clutching the balloon string? Are you serving the Lord with heaviness? Are you coming before his presence with a sigh? Because I have to, because that's what he expects of me. Or are we with eager anticipation saying, yes, Lord, I desire to serve you. I desire to come into your presence with singing and with great joy. It is a privilege to be able to serve you, the creator, the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of my life. My friends, it is a privilege to do what we are doing this morning. It is a privilege and an honor to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory. And yes, to know Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, as your personal Savior. It is the greatest blessing in life. So my friends, if you're still holding on to that string, let it go. Let it go. Let your balloon rise. Let your joy lift to the Lord, for he is worthy that we serve him with gladness, that we come before his presence with singing, not only on the Sabbath, but seven days of the week. For Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is the Lord of the week. He is the Lord of life, and he is the Lord of our lives. And he is worthy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we come before you with gladness of hearts, that you are the Lord of the Sabbath, and as the Lord of the Sabbath, the Creator, you are the Lord of all life. Every day of the week belongs to you, and everything and everyone that you have made belongs to you. And we thank you that you have called us to follow you, that we are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. And so we honor you with our bodies, with our lives, and with our worship. We thank you that it is not a burden, but a privilege to serve you, to follow you, to worship you, and to give you all honor and glory and praise for what you have done. And so, Lord, as we consider how the burdens of the law so enslave the Pharisees and the people when you walked this earth, I pray, Lord, that we would see it for what it is, that the law was given so that we could see how much we fell short, so that we could see how badly we needed you, and that when you came, you fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law so that we could be set free to live freely and fully with you and for you, not with heaviness, but with great joy. And so may we live out that joy, Lord, as we walk with you day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.